Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome everyone to Cornerstone Bible Church and those who are joining us on the uh, live stream. Now we have the wonderful privilege coming to the Word of God, so please if you will turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, the first epistle of the Apostle John, chapter 2, and this morning we'll be reading and be on the passage starting in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 23. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning together as we examine your word and pray that you will bless this time together and through your word you speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by your word so that we may be faithful disciples. So we commend this time to you, Lord. Pray for your blessing upon it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we come back to the first epistle of John. A short epistle, only five chapters. You can read it in one sitting in 20 to 25 minutes or so. And yet it's full of rich biblical truth for the true disciples of Christ. For those who truly believe in Christ. It was written by the Apostle John. At this time, he's an old man and the last living apostle. It's written written towards the end of the first century at Ephesus, where the Apostle John is placed by church history. He's a pastor over these churches, and we can sense his pastoral love and the care for the churches, as he often refers to his spiritual flock as children or little children. It's one of the general epistles. It's not addressed to one church in particular. Probably was intended for the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, the Apostle John, of course, is known as the Apostle of Love in the Christian, and certainly throughout this epistle, the importance of love is prominent. And yet, John also emphasizes the importance of the truth of God's word in the Christian life. The epistle was written to confront false teachers who had infiltrated the churches and were teaching heresy, which was an early form of Gnosticism. They taught a dualism that 
matter and the material was inherently evil and the spiritual was inherently good. Some taught that Jesus' body was not a real physical body but only appeared to be so. Others taught that Christ's spirit descended upon Jesus at the baptism and then left him before the crucifixion. So there was here a denial of Jesus' humanity and a denial of his deity. And so John confronts this head-on right from the beginning, from the opening verse of the epistle. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Thus John asserts the humanity of Christ and he asserts the deity of Christ. John proclaimed the word of life so that all true believers would realize that they have fellowship with Jesus Christ, with the Father, and with fellow believers. So the word render fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which signifies a mutual participation in a shared life. All believers have a mutual participation through our union with Christ, and we participate in a shared life with each other. So it is much more than a mere partnership of those who have the same beliefs and are thus drawn together. Rather, it's a mutual life and love of those who are one in spirit. We are one in Christ. Now, John is above all else a pastor. And he's shepherding a group of local churches in Asia Minor and wants to help his flock learn how to think and live as Christians. As a pastor, his concern is for his spiritual flock, and this is patent throughout the epistle. He loves them. He's deeply concerned and wants to protect them from the attractions of the world, as we saw the last time we were together, and from the errors of false teachers and wants to see them established in faith, love, and holiness. There's nothing tentative or apologetic about the way in which John writes. He doesn't hesitate to call certain people liars, deceivers, or as we see in our passage this morning, antichrist. At the same time, he exhibits a tender pastoral care for his readers. His first concern is to protect his beloved children, and to establish them in the Christian faith and the Christian life. So as we examine the epistle, we realize that at the core of our Christian thinking, there must be a right understanding and embracing of the divine human person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is paramount throughout this epistle. And at the core of our Christian living, there must be a sincere manifestation of righteousness and love. 
So when false teachers come, they sow their seeds of disruption and confusion. But John shows the original readers and us, as we look at this epistle this morning, how to develop a sound and vigorous assurance about Christ and about our relationship with him. Throughout this epistle, John wants to assure us of our relationship with Christ. When false teachers trouble the church, we need to hear and heed John's exhortation. That is, to continue in what we have learned and received and to let it continue in us. Verse 24 of chapter 2 says, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now he writes this epistle so that true disciples can have the certainty of the assurance of their eternal life in Christ. And that purpose is stated towards the end of the letter itself in chapter 5 and verse 13 where uh, John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The stated purpose of writing the epistle is for those who are true believers in Christ to have full assurance of their salvation and of their eternal life in Christ. Pastor John MacArthur, speaking about verse, this verse, states, the phrase, these things, sweeps backward to encompass the entire letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, John announces purpose in writing, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. In, in chapter 5, and verse 13, he looks back on what he had written. <clears throat> these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. Together, these two verses state John's purpose in writing, since it is assurance of eternal life that produces fullness of joy. Eternal life involves far more than merely living forever. In a chronological sense, the essence of eternal life is the believer's participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him. We are united with Christ. Jesus defined it in his high priestly prayer in John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 3. The Lord prayed, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John wrote this epistle to provide his readers with certainty about all that God has revealed concerning salvation. Throughout the epistle, John presents tests that identify who is a true Christian. Now, those tests expose the false believers and the false teachers. And they also give genuine, true believers stronger confidence and assurance of their salvation. One is the moral test, whether we are practicing righteousness, whether we are keeping the commands of God and we see this in chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Second, we have the social test, which is whether we love Christ and love one another. Since God is love and all love comes from God, it is clear that a loveless person does not know, know him. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 7 and following. It says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And the passage we looked at the last time that we were in First John, which is the love that the Christian must not have, that is, the love of the world. Verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And third, the doctrinal test, which is whether we believe in the truth of the gospel, whether we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ come in the flesh, fully God, fully man. No belief which denies either the eternal, divine preexistence of Christ or the historical incarnation of Christ can be accepted as Christian. And we see in the passage we are looking at this morning, in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. A wrong view of Christ leads to eternal damnation. And this issue is crucial due to its dire consequences. That's why John presents it with such directness. False disciples, false teachers, deny the truth about Christ, revealing themselves to be antichrists. True disciples, on the other hand, affirm the truth about Christ, revealing themselves to be genuine children of God. Certainly, the directness with which John addresses the situation is not very compatible with the approach most people in our society and the church at large would be very comfortable with today. That's because we live in a time that is conditioned but by what is identified as postmodernism. Now, this worldview is characterized by people who no longer strictly believe in truth. Now, even though the term truth may be used, many don't believe that when a thing is said to be true, it is therefore true absolutely. Instead, they usually mean that it may be true for some people, but not for others. It may be true in some circumstances, but not in other circumstances. So it's quite possible for someone nowadays to say or assert, you have your truth and I have my truth. Or similarly, the belief that God exists may be true for you, but it's not true for me. In other words, there is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Of course, the statement truth is relative is an unsustainable statement in and of itself. It's a self-refuting statement. 
Because if the statement is absolutely true, then it defeats its own proposition that truth is relative. And if the statement is relative, then we can't trust it to be true all the time, so why should we take it seriously? So when a person claims that all truth is relative and believes that all should hold to this principle, he just made an absolute statement. But still, that mindset dominates our postmodern world today. Unfortunately, that mindset doesn't just affect the world, but has infected the church as well. And relativism has made significant inroads into the church. Now, Pastor Bill has made reference to this in the past, but I just like to remind you that there was a 2020 Barna survey that found that 52% of evangelical churchgoers now reject absolute moral truth. 52% of evangelical churchgoers. They are rejecting biblical teaching on any number of issues. There was an article reporting these results of the survey, and it makes the following statement. Once an individual cuts free from the mooring of biblical truth, they become like a ship without a sail or without a rudder, being tossed to and fro by the winds and whims of those who seize power and influence. Rather than transforming the culture around them with biblical truth, the opposite is happening. American Christianity is rapidly conforming to the values of the post-Christian secular culture. The result is always chaos and destruction, end quote. That's an accurate statement. Many within the evangelical church at large have bought into the assertion that in order to be tolerant and loving, we cannot hold on to affirmations of absolute biblical truth. Claims of exclusive biblical truth are viewed as arrogant and unloving. As Pastor Vodebachum has stated, many in the church today hold firmly to the 11th commandment, and the 11th commandment is, thou shalt be nice, and they don't hold to the other 10. Now the slogan is, doctrine divides. Let's set aside our doctrinal differences and, and come together. Now remember, Jesus said that they will know that we are discipled by our love, not by our doctrine. So the implication here is that we set aside our doctrinal views and accept anyone who says that he or she believes Jesus. Now, this relativism has a misguided emphasis on tolerance and a non-biblical view of love. And along with de-emphasizing biblical truth, which is prominent, it leads to a great weakening of the individual Christian's spiritual discernment. So we must be careful. Therefore, false teachers can infiltrate the church and carry out their demonic work without being detected, without being identified, or being called out. So spiritual discernment is minimized because biblical truth is minimized. And this brings us to the passage we're looking at this morning in 1 John where the apostle makes it clear that true disciples are to be grounded in biblical truth and discerning of false disciples. In verse 21, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. 
Now the grounding, and it's grounding in the truth of the gospel that enables the Christians to be discerning in, in regards to false teacher. We must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, we can't be discerning Christians. As he says in verse 26 in the same passage, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, in this passage, the Apostle John deals with a great danger that confronts the Christian as we live in this world. Indeed, this danger arises in and from the life of the church itself. Since the days of the New Testament, Satan has planted these deceivers in Christian churches where they prey on the spiritual immature. To avoid spiritual deception, we must develop biblical discernment and the vigil be vigilant at all times. Now, in this passage, John first draws a clear distinction between the heretics, those that are false disciples, and the genuine Christians, the true disciples. Then he defines the nature and the effect of the heresy, and finally, it describes the safeguards against that heresy which the Christian has. So let's look at verse 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now in our passage, this morning we're looking at the doctrinal test. We can know who are true Christian, in true Christian fellowship by the doctrine that they teach and by the truth that they believe. So we see that for us as believers, the battle is not just between love and hatred, that is the social or relational battle. It is not just a battle between holiness and sin, that is a, a, <clears throat> a moral battle, but it's also a battle for doctrine. It's a battle for the truth. It is a battle between truth and error. And here in verse 18, there's a very severe contrast. You know, we can look at a church and say that there are people in the church who believe truth and there are those who don't, but the Apostle John doesn't do that. He's very confrontive. He's very stark. He says there are Christians and there are antichrists. And for John in this text, the issue is their view of Christ. If you have the right view of Christ, it leads to salvation. If you have the wrong view of Christ, you are an antichrist. Verse 18, and John starts here the verse, notice, with the word children. As he has done before, John addresses his readers as children, identify them as those who belong to the family of God. As an old man and pastor of the churches, he views his flock as his children, his spiritual children. And those who he wants to warn. 
He wants to warn them of an impending danger. According to A.W. Pink, the, the, this term, the term is used here for children, ought to have been translated babes. The Greek term found in our text is a descriptive and distinguishing one, being used only of the lowest grade of God's children, namely spiritual infants. It was really a word of warning to them. The babes are the ones most liable to be beguiled and poisoned by the Antichrist. It is essential for all Christians, but especially for those who are less spiritually mature and hence most vulnerable, to understand the serious threat presented by the false teachers, the Antichrist. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, we read, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. When we are spiritually immature, when we are spiritual children, we are in danger. Because if we're not grounded in the knowledge of Christ through the word of God, we, then we lack discernment and are susceptible to be enticed, to be deceived by false teachers. Then John continues, children, it is the last hour. Here he further underscores the urgency of the subject, John reminding his readers that it is the last hour. Now this phrase, the last hour, literally reads, last hour it is, the word order making it an emphatic expression. Twice he tells his children that this is the last hour. The phrase, the last hour, is, a syn is synonymous with the phrase, the last days or these last times, which we are familiar expressions used in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it refers to the entire period between the birth of Christ and his second coming. They all refer to the present era of redemptive history from the first coming of Christ. And we find them in multiple passages, Acts 2, chapter Acts chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour, out, pour forth of my spirit on all man, mankind in the last days. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Here, verse 1 refers to God using men as his instruments in writing the Old Testament, but now in these last days, Jesus Christ is God's final word. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. These last days began with the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. So John warns his readers and us that it is the last hour, which in the context is the equivalent of the last days. 
Now, we are still living in the Messianic time, and that's between Christ's first and his second coming, and all of these may be properly called the last days. As we go on in verse 18, it states, And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Of course, the word Antichrist seems to immediately kind of evoke a foreboding and ominous feelings and notions. And many people seem to be fascinated by trying to figure out who the Antichrist will be or if, he, if he's already in the world. And often they'll attach the Antichrist to their least favorite political figure. Now, the actual word Antichrist occurs only in John's epistle, twice in the passage we have this morning in verse 18 and verse 22, and also in chapter 4 and verse 3 of 1 John, and then in verse 7 of 2 John. The Bible predicts a coming Antichrist, a representative of Satan who is the embodiment of evil. Now, the prefix anti can mean against or instead of. So the coming Antichrist is a counterfeit to the Messiah, yet he is also against Jesus by opposing Jesus and his saints. Now we notice that John says here, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, and how would the Christians of that time have heard of the Antichrist, since the word Antichrist is only used by John? Well, even though the word itself, Antichrist, is only used by John, the Antichrist is described in other portions of Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, they would have read about the Antichrist in several passages. Also, they would have known from Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, which was written probably about three or four decades earlier. In this second letter of Thessalonians, in the second chapter, Paul states, uh, he refers to the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness, reveals that this evil man arrives in connection with the day of the Lord and opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So John refers to a specific Antichrist to come, yet he also mentions that even now many Antichrists have appeared. Now these are not the Antichrist but they function in the spirit of the Antichrist, opposing who Jesus is and what he stands for. In chapter 4 and verse 3 of this first epistle of John, it says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which evidences itself in false religion, and aberrant doctrine is already of the world. Now, there is a sense in which everyone who does not confess Jesus Christ as Lord is against them, and therefore an Antichrist. But the person may well say, well, I'm not against Christ. I just don't believe in the Christ that's portrayed in the Bible. But the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 12:30, he who is not with me is against me. Now, as we look at the context of this, of verse 18, this morning in John, he is referring to false teachers when he identifies them as Antichrist. We can expect many who possess the Antichrist spirit while knowing that a personal Antichrist is also coming. 
So an antichrist is basically an antagonist of Christ and someone who corrupts Christ's doctrine. Second Peter chapter 3 states, Know this, first of all, that in these last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. The entire age will be marked by antagonists of the Christian truth and the hope of Christ's return. Mockers will come, false teachers arguing against Christ or any teaching of Scripture through ridicule. And these characteristics will prevail until Christ returns. And then the last part of the verse, John says, from this we know that it is the last hour. The presence of Antichrist was evidence that the true Christ had come. The coming of the Messiah energized the spirit of Antichrist to appear in full force. And so we see in the New Testament how prominently false teachers appear and play destructive roles throughout the churches. Now we see this reflected in Paul's epistles, where he seems to be followed everywhere he goes by these false teachers. We find that in Peter's second epistle. Jude even says in his epistle, in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So we see here Jude had intended to write a letter of salvation, on salvation and as a common blessing for all believers, but he was compelled instead to write a call to battle for the truth in light of the arrival of apostate teachers. The threat of false teachers was so imminent that he couldn't write about what he wanted to write about and needed to write about the false teachers. Satan, through the false teachers, is able to mask his perversion. He masks his perversion of the truth and then imitates God with spiritual counterfeits. Therefore, we must be discerning. As Christians, we must be alert. As we go on to verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now the opening word in this verse makes it apparent that it's closely linked to the previous verse. The word they and it refers back to the many antichrists of verse 18. They went out from us. They were not men who had initially been open adversaries to the truth since they were part of the church. They had previously walked with the Lord's people but now had gone out from them. The Greek phraseology is even more emphatic. It says, from among us they went out, it states. So originally, they were members of the Christian assembly, and the statement that they went out implies more than just a physical departure. There was an, 
departure in affection and a departure in doctrine, most importantly. It was more than just leaving a particular church. They became heretical leaders, contrary to the glory of Christ and contrary to the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 22 of the same passage. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. They were, therefore, apostates from the faith. They rejected the gospel. It's a very sad and a disturbing matter when people who have been part of a church depart and reject the faith. Apostasy is a heartbreaking and difficult matter to deal with. It can even be faith-shaking for some if we're not firmly grounded in the Word of God. And so John then assures his children, as he goes on, he states, those who went out from us were not really of us. And here he denies that they ever belonged to Christ. They had never obeyed from the heart the doctrine that they had received. The many antichrists who have already come are now here identified as false disciples. They have left the church. They have excommunicated themselves. Now John here distinguishes sharply between the they who have left us and the us who remain. They went out from us. By their defection, they have given clear evidence of their true character. The false teachers did not really belong to us. So certain is John of this fact that he adds, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And then he says, but they, they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Here, John not only relates the fact of their departure from the fellowship, but discerns a purpose in it. You see, the heretics went out of their own volition, but behind the secession was the divine purpose that false disciples should be made manifest. Their departure was their unmasking, and through that unmasking, the Lord purified his church. What is counterfeit cannot remain forever hidden in the church. Now, this verse, far from being discouraging, is actually very encouraging because it sheds light upon the important doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Mark chapter 13 and verse 13 says, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this is not because salvation is the reward of endurance, but because endurance is the hallmark of the saved. Those who endure demonstrate by that very endurance, that they are genuine believers. They're true disciples, and true disciples have the ability to endure. Now, this does not come from their own resolve, but from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who enables them to stand firm in the midst of adversity. Thus, 
Struble, as true believers, we can face hardship with unwavering resolve, armed with a divinely granted faith. And that faith holds firmly to the promise that God will preserve and protect those who are his. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is solely a work of God. It is the Lord who begins the work of salvation, and it is the Lord through his Holy Spirit who will carry it out to completion. In this verse, bring it to completion has the intensified meaning of fully completed, fully completed. Not partially, but fully completed. God will fully complete his work of salvation in the true disciple. And in verse 19, John, speaking of the false disciples, states, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, those who belong to us, those who are in Christ, those stay with us. Future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. Calvin states, those who fall away, on the other hand, have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. A.W. Pink comments, the regenerate are endowed with the spirit of perseverance and run the race that is set before them. Therefore, those who quit the race and become apostates could never have been renewed in their hearts. Thus it is that steadfastness, loyalty, and endurance are among the surest marks of the new birth. Said our Lord, if ye continue in my word, then are ye, parenthesis, not shall become such, because you're doing it, though, but are ye my disciples indeed? Those who have been divinely quickened will most assuredly remain true to the faith and persevere in holiness to the end of their earthly course. All true believers are sovereignly preserved in their salvation by the power of God. It's important to note that God's sovereignty in no way eliminates the believer's responsibility to persevere in faith throughout his or her life. God's sovereign preservation is not at odds with the necessity of the believer's perseverance. According to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that the believer is protected by the power of God, but his power keeps us through faith. That is, a persevering faith. All those who are truly born of the Spirit and united to Christ by faith are kept sure in him by God's power, and thus will persevere in faith until they go to be with Christ in death or when he returns. 
There's much more in this passage, but Lord willing, we'll wait for next week. Just want to share one final part. In the last chapter of the Gospel of John, there's a truly remarkable passage where the Lord Jesus um, meets with his disciples after his resurrection, and Peter and the a part of the disciples that are there waiting, and Peter is the impetuous one who says, I'm going fishing, and the five disciples went fishing with him and follow him, and then the Lord is waiting uh, by the shore, and John's the first to recognize him. Of course, Peter, again, the impetuous one, jumps in the water and runs to him, and the Lord then has a session with Peter where basically he restores him after his denials. And, but after the Lord graciously restores Peter and actually commissions him to feed his sheep, to be the shepherd to his sheep, there's a, a remarkable two verses, in verse 18 and 19, where the Lord is then making a prophecy of Peter. It says, beginning in verse 18, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then verse 19, the Apostle John, writing the gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this comment. Now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. A remark remarkable passage, isn't it? You see, the Lord here, after restoring Peter and commissioning him, is prophesying his death. Now, at, at first look, this appears to be something that would be kind of ominous. He's predicting that he will be martyred and even predicting the, the way of death. Now, tradition tells us that eventually Peter was martyred and crucified and because he deemed it not to be, uh, he wanted not to be crucified the same way his Lord was. He was crucified upside down. But the point of this verse here in verse 19, the Lord said, he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And this is important. The Lord is telling Peter, you will glorify me in your death. He is telling me that he will hold them fast. He will persevere till the end and glorify God in his death. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have that you hold us fast. We confess our unfaithfulness to you, O Lord, but yet we thank you that we can have the assurance that you will complete the work you have begun in us. Give us the faith, Lord, to be able to continually persevere as you hold us fast. And we thank you and praise you in the wonderful and precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.